The Reimagining Development podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people, or part of coastal Sydney, and the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people of Canberra, and a number of others across this country. We give our thanks and pay our respects to all Indigenous people. Sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Development, conversations on the new development policy. This is an initiative of Goodwill Hunters in a special series in collaboration with the Australian Council for International Development, or ACFID. As the name spells out, this breakout series is all about the development policy. We want to inject new ideas, fresh voices and innovative thinking into the design of the new policy. I'm Rachel Mason-Nunn, founder of Goodwill Hunters and director with Equity Economics. And I'm Jessica McKenzie, ACFID's Chief of Policy and Advocacy. Most of us in the development world have spent the past couple of months deep in thought and conversation about how the new development policy should look. And the aim of this podcast is to bring those conversations to you, the listener. We're casting a wide lens on the aid, development and humanitarian sector. This series brings together established thought leaders, emerging thought leaders, exciting new voices and perspectives from across the sector and beyond. Now a little disclaimer on terminology. This is a conversation and sometimes we'll use the words policy and process interchangeably. Sometimes we'll get the accepted terminology wrong. Please bear with us, it's all in the spirit of a free flowing exchange of ideas. Now Australia has had a long and rich heritage of Indigenous knowledge, practices and modes of being. For too long, Australia's colonial and post-colonial rule has ignored those ways and methods or more accurately often worked to extinguish them. Thankfully, however, knowledge has survived and is now very latently, but also something that's very welcome, starting to be accepted, embraced and folded into how we live our everyday lives. And now there's a move towards incorporating First Nations knowledge and practices in Australia's international relations and foreign policy. How Australia does this is yet to be seen, and while low-key consultations around this are happening, we're keen to tap into some of the great minds of people who have been engaged in this work for decades. One of them is Joe Morrison. Joe is Group CEO of the Indigenous Land and Sea Corporation. He has Dargaman and Torres Strait Islander heritage and over 30 years experience working with Indigenous people, mostly in Northern Australia and more recently with Indigenous people around the world. He is a leading policy expert on issues around climate change, traditional knowledge, carbon economies, water rights, Indigenous institutional governance, as well as a background in working at a community level. Joe, welcome. Thank you, and it's a, it's a pleasure to be uh, part of this podcast. Thank you. Now, Joe, before we kick off, is there anything you want to add to your bio? No, not really. I mean, I guess um, without going into too much detail, it's always uh, interesting to reflect when people read your bio. Um, just uh, exactly the work that you've been doing and the importance of it. Um, Obviously, 30 years ago, when we were walking around and doing things with the communities and individuals in central Arnhem Land in the Northern Territory, we weren't thinking about uh, international policy, but that's exactly what it's gotten to and the influence that uh, that 30-year journey, not just for myself, but a lot of Aboriginal people that have been part of that that movement and in reality, which has spread right around Australia and now is spreading internationally, has uh, become so important and it's uh, being recognised by the Australian government and uh, also the international community. So it's uh, it's really interesting. Mm, it's all coming to fruition, isn't it? Yeah. 
Joe, we at ACFID have been turning our minds to a First Nations foreign policy, and we're finding a lot of hunger amongst our members and stakeholders for more knowledge around this, particularly because it's so new and also, as Rachel mentioned, because incorporating Indigenous knowledge is so overdue but also so key to governance needs to move forward. What would you like to tell listeners about it? About traditional knowledge? Well, effectively that, uh, you know, the process of colonisation across Australia uh, hasn't extinguished it. And as we've seen in many places, even in uh, some of the biggest cities in Australia, in Melbourne and and Sydney, that Indigenous people still articulate a a level of connectivity and use of that land, uh, regardless of it being uh, urbanised and developed now, and they're still connected to that place in a customary sense. And, And so it tells you that there's enormous levels of resilience within Indigenous people in Australia, but also the fact that um, Indigenous knowledge isn't something that stopped being uh, used and uh, acquitting itself uh, in 1788, that it was always evolving and people have used it and adapted it uh, with Western science tools. And here we are talking about uh, how it uh, could be applicable to other places in the world. Do you have any initial thoughts? I know it's early days, but on how that might play out with an Indigenous foreign policy? Well, as we know, I mean, there isn't a foreign policy in place and, and we, we have seen recent times with a new Labor government here a moves to establish a ambassador for First Nations people, which is pretty exciting, I must admit. Um, and so that, that sets the scene really for Indigenous input into the nation's uh, foreign relations with other neighbouring countries. In particular, of interest to myself is really the relationship we have with our neighbours, that is New Guinea, Papua New Guinea and uh, the Pacific Nations. Um, and so how that plays out um, is is pretty uh, exciting, I think, because there are many Indigenous people who've been doing very exciting things that want to connect with other Indigenous people uh, in other parts of the world and share that knowledge. Some of this already takes place, of course, but to, to be able to do it under a Australian government-sanctioned policy makes it all the more, I guess, interesting and um, exciting. Yeah, it makes it more prominent, doesn't it? It sort of enshrines it. It does. It elevates traditional knowledge and the contribution that Indigenous people have been making, not just to their own societies, but now to uh, those that have arrived here since 1788. Yeah, and it gives it a, a, a prominent but also a more permanent place within the bureaucracy of how these processes play out. Yeah, and I think really important for me is that it breaks down this sort of mythology associated with traditional knowledge that it was something mythological and, you know, embedded in in smoke um, for want of better sort of descriptions. Um, it, it is something in my experience that is real, it's practical. Uh, it has obviously got a spiritual dimension to it, um, but it's also got some reality to it too. And uh, we're seeing uh, traditional knowledge um, contributing to all sorts of things, medicines, uh, as well as foods, healthy foods and uh, ability to upkeep country. Mm, that practical application, all about to be demonstrated very clearly. We've been having a couple of conversations with the Minister for International Development, and we've also been having a few conversations with people from New Zealand. And some of the issues coming up already included uh, in New Zealand, they're talking a lot about the timelines being quite different within a bureaucracy. Um, and you've mentioned the new ambassador coming into play. How do you think Australian policymakers need to shift their thinking to best allow them to help harness these ideas? I think it's, uh, you know, it's an evolution. Um, We've seen foreign policy, I guess, being designed in the same way that 
bureaucracy has designed government programs for Indigenous Australians, uh, and that is that uh, the bureaucracy historically uh, has always been seeing itself as um, having the answers, having the solutions, knowing what's best for Indigenous people. And so it's really important to unpack that and to realise that Indigenous people are best placed to be able to manifest their own futures and their destinies, uh, but empowering them and, and creating a, an environment where there's uh, self-determination in the true sense, I think is really important in the foreign policy sense to be able to enable Indigenous people to connect with other Indigenous people, to share those ideas, to not just think about big P policy, but to think about small P policy at a local village community level as well. And that being just as important as any other sorts of policy interventions uh, within that sphere. Mm. It's interesting to think about the kinds of areas where we would expect First Nations foreign policy might go. And over the last couple of years in Australia, we've had a really awful period of um, natural disasters and extreme weather events with bushfires, flooding, other issues. And I think what we've seen is Indigenous land management come to the forefront. And I did a podcast profile last year of the wonderful work of Fire Sticks, which is just one example of um, organisations demonstrating Indigenous land management. So that seems like an area where there might be an exchange of ideas with some of our Pacific colleagues um, as part of First Nations foreign policy. So too in the health area and Indigenous health management, perhaps. And um, what areas do you see coming to the forefront of, of ideas and knowledge sharing? I think the whole caring for country movement, uh, from my own practical experience, is something that's, um, as we've seen in Australia, has just exploded. And I said uh, earlier that, uh, in my experience, it was something that was started in the Northern Territory, and we've seen it expand right around the country. Uh, I know from my uh, previous conversations with colleagues uh, in Fiji and other parts of the Pacific that they love the concept of having community-based ranges or something like that, uh, where people can uh, work through with their villages, uh, with their leaders, uh, the ability to look after that country in a customary sense, but also to explore innovative ways of being able to uh, interact with the commercial sector. And so using that that customary traditional knowledge, uh, but also looking at ways in which they could uh, generate uh, localised economies to keep themselves sustained. So you know, that's one example. Obviously, you mentioned fire sticks. That's something that I've had a bit of history with too, and particularly uh, Savannah Burning in Northern Australia had a big role in that as well. So we started the selling of carbon uh, equivalent uh, abatement in Northern Australia and Savannah Burning, and that's something now that is uh, of very particular interest in parts of Africa and, and Brazil and even California where there's big fire problems and Indigenous people are uh, looking at solutions to support themselves, but also to reduce the emissions and the fire potential. Yeah. So the thought that comes to mind for me, Joe, is that we're really in our infancy in Australia at learning to work with and embrace Indigenous knowledge, right? And I feel we're only just starting to understand the different ways that knowledge is constructed in uh, more Western systems versus more Indigenous systems. You know, one is highly reductionist, the other isn't. So I wonder, is it premature and we're still very much on this journey ourselves to be thinking we can be looking at how to share this knowledge with our 
Pacific neighbours? Like, is it too soon? Should we be keeping our eyes on our backyard right now here in Australia? No, I, th- I think I think we can do both, actually. I think uh, as a nation we can continue to build and create the opportunities here in Australia uh, at the same time that we're able to have that dialogue uh, with nations uh, next door. And for myself, coming from the Torres Strait Islanders uh, as well, I mean, they've got a very much a, a Pacific sort of culture about them. So there's a lot of connectivity between Torres Strait Islanders and, the, and Pacific Islanders in terms of their uh, understanding of marine environments, their culture and their customs. Um, and we've seen in the Torres Strait or Zened Kesses, it's locally referred to, uh, enormous levels of community engagement in ranger programs, community planning, uh, and looking at ways in which they could uh, deal with climate change and other impacts that are uh, facing these island nations. Yeah. I mean, do you have do you have concerns? Like, is there a history that do we, ha- do we have much precedent to suggest that this won't just be the commodification of Indigenous intellectual property? That's always a concern and that's something that you've got to uh, keep an eye on. And um, I guess that's uh, from my experience again, uh, talking about Savannah burning and its applicability, uh, you've got to be careful about the kinds of information that you're sharing, that it's protected and uh, all the background uh, information that goes with it. So it's one thing to protect it, but it's another thing also to ensure that it's is continued, so it's not just uh, turned into an exercise where people talk about carbon, for example. It's not about carbon, it's about fire and people's customary obligations to manage their country. And so that you've got to maintain that balance and ensure that there's some level of integrity in the conversation uh, and also the, uh, the traditional knowledge. Mm. So a big part of ILSD's mandate is around fishing. And this is something that's, as you've mentioned, a huge part of Pacific economies. What is the Australian global connection here? Can I, can I press you a little bit further on the role of fishing? Well, fishing as it um, relates to the uh, Indigenous Land and Sea Corporation is a relatively new thing uh, because the ILSC in its history was established to assist Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to acquire land. And it wasn't uh, inclusive of any either marine uh, property or freshwater property. So that was only a recent inclusion in 2019 that that changed. But as we've seen in the last few years, that there is a a heightened level of interest by Indigenous people, particularly in the fishing sector, to be involved. Um, And uh, if you're in some parts of the country, such as Tasmania, where Indigenous people lived almost entirely on seafood, uh, you know, there's a there's an abundance of uh, intellect and knowledge and uh, the capacity for Indigenous people to participate in international dialogue and policy settings, uh, but also entrepreneurial activities to do with marine environments. At the same time that people talk about sustainability, you know, there's a great appetite for that. So I, I think that there is, there is uh, enormous opportunity for Indigenous people to start having that dialogue with other Indigenous people. And is much of that already happening or does it need to be supported to get going? No, I think it needs incubation and it also needs a bit of support. And I guess um, whether it's, you know, part of the foreign policy or not, I think Indigenous people will, by uh, their own movements, start working in that direction where they would like to see uh, those level of connections uh, put into place. Yeah, I worry there's not enough space for Indigenous people to have those dialogues at the global level. So I'm really interested in where it's happening, if it is, and how it can be amplified. And I'm just not sure I know many people with the answers. 
Yeah, that's that's exactly correct, and and I think um, that's probably the next, or one at least one of the next steps to take into um, amplifying Indigenous voices at a at that level. It doesn't really occur; it's been ad hoc in my experience. And also, I would be loath to just rely on government intervention as well. I think there needs to be a, a joining up of community uh, and other and other sources of support for that. And we've seen there are enormous levels of uh, philanthropic, but also NGOs running around the world that have got an interest in this space as well that could assist in creating those spaces. Yeah, I think it's an area that NGOs feel quite passionately about. Yeah. Uh, you've written in the past about the impact of climate change on Indigenous Australians, particularly in the top north of the country. What is the impact and how is it different to the general impact of climate change that we're all feeling? Well, as you know, in, in northern Australia and, and particularly northern and central Australia, where there are large uh, populations of Indigenous people because obviously the wave of colonisation was later on in that part of the country and there's also large swathes of land that has been returned under various sort of legislative regimes. And so that has meant that Indigenous people have been able to stay relatively close to their traditional estates. Uh, but that has also meant that Indigenous people have been living in enormous poverty. Uh, there's been overcrowded houses that people are continually living in, in in most of those areas. And so when we talk about climate change impacts, that might affect everyone, they're exacerbated ultimately uh, in the Indigenous community because there's poor infrastructure, uh, there's uh, already uh, poor levels of uh, human health, um, there's also a lack of infrastructure in a lot of places as well. And we've seen just recently uh, in the floods in the Kimberley, uh, it only takes uh, you know one amazing um, event to wipe out uh, a road, and that road is the... Uh, artery to uh, the rest of Australia. And so um, these places that rely on infrastructure that is effectively not up to the changes in the climate that we are now starting to witness that we foretold were coming over a decade ago, you know, there needs to be a serious rethink. And we've seen that in other parts of the world, particularly the Pacific, where people are crying out for assistance and to be uh, more aggressive in national and international uh, climate change policies. Yeah, I think that one obviously a very topical issue at the moment is the voice to parliament and there are many discussions as you'd be far more aware of, of how it might impact upon domestic policy making, less on how it might impact upon international policy and foreign policy, but I suspect it would have consequences. Could you start by just sharing your views on, on the voice? Yeah, I'll start by firstly a disclaimer that is the that the ILSC, who will, you know obviously employs me, does not have a position in relation to the voice. But I'll also say that um, I, uh, in previous life, was uh, a part of the um, Uluru Statement and was part of the regional dialogues that took place leading into the Uluru Statement. So there are um, lots of Aboriginal people, uh, and fortunately I was one of those that attended those uh, events uh, and participated in that dialogue. Uh, and so in terms of the voice, I mean, the voice as we know and what we're hearing in the media is only a mechanism to provide advice to the parliament, and that's all it is. Um, it's not to do anything else. But in terms of foreign policy, I think it could have an impact uh, because uh, if there's a disconnect between uh, Indigenous people at a local level and if we take the current sort of broad model that's been talked about with the voice being 
are made up of 24 people uh, and people you would expect would be from a range of remote plus urban settings, uh, they would have some level of connectivity into um, these kinds of activities going on in their country. Um, and also, uh, you know, foreign affairs is a, is a national uh, matter that comes before the parliament. So uh, I would hesitate in suggesting that the voice would have something to say about uh, a First Nations policy and the development of one uh, going forward and how Indigenous people may partake in uh, existing bilateral agreements between nations as well. Mm. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I think I think what's really interesting is how there is already a legacy of Indigenous communities leading trade and foreign relations for many, many centuries that I think sometimes we forget. And a great example of that is in Northern Australia, where our earliest trade relations with Indonesia were the sea cucumber trade that dates back many centuries. And so there is actually this history of foreign policy. And, and, and I, I think that it's a question of how we're recognising and building upon that. Like, how, how can we sort of acknowledge those lessons learned and built upon? Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. And you you hit the nail on the head and beat me to the to the comment actually about the uh, the Macassan trade. And it was Australia's first international trade before it was Australia. Uh, and so the lessons in my mind are to obviously uh, be considerate of those trades uh, and not to uh, be an interventionist, because uh, as we know that that was stopped because there was a view by uh, the South Australian government, I believe it was at the time, that. Uh, there shouldn't be any foreign uh, vessels and people interacting with uh, northern coastline Indigenous people amongst a range of things. Uh, there was obviously trade in materials, but there's also uh, people going back and forth as well um, and adoption of a lot of language uh, and part of the economy. And if you go to places of northern Australia, you hear uh, lots of Indonesian words being spoken and um, there is also evidence of some uh, Yolngu people from Arnhem Land also living and residing uh, in Makassar. Um, and so, you know, Australia shouldn't um, be worried about those sorts of things insofar as obviously concerns around biosecurity, but they should um, be mindful of the fact that Indigenous people do have economies and they do have entrepreneurship and there is an ability to uplift and amplify those opportunities. I also wonder if it's not about acknowledging what has happened and making sure everyone's aware of it. I feel like so much of those practices are a little bit invisible. So we're coming out now with a new First Nations foreign policy and the first thing is acknowledging what has existed so far. Absolutely. I mean, that should be a that should be a basis for any uh, First Nations policies that there is, uh, there's a lot of water under the bridge, so to speak, um, on anything that's been developed. And so what we're doing uh, is adapting... Uh, to modern settings, to the federation, um, and but at the same time we need to acknowledge um, some of the good things and some of the not so good things that have happened in the past. Mm. So it's, in some ways it's a new way of doing things. In another way, it's really just absorbing older ways of doing things and and bringing them to the fore. Yeah, absolutely. And and going back to that question about the voice, I mean, and, and important parts. Other important parts of that conversation around uh, the voice and national representation and embedding Indigenous people in the fabric of Australian identity and um, nationhood is the reality of having to uh, go through a truth-telling process as well. Um, that's a fundamental part of uh, 
of all of that as as well as the Macarada process of um, coming to an agreement because uh, there's got to be some, and many Indigenous people believe there's got to be some form of settlement for the disposition that took place and we've seen what's happened in the Timber Creek High Court decision. But I think importantly, truth-telling is a, a fundamental part uh, of nation building and the nation realising uh, that some things that have happened in the past since um, the British arrived haven't been all that good for Indigenous people, but it shouldn't be done in a way that uh, stops us progressing collectively. And what's fascinating is how what you're saying mirrors a lot of the sentiment we hear from our Pacific colleagues about the way that they too would like to engage with Australia with that truth-telling and equality and respect of respect for shared knowledge and experience and history and i and i think in that sense the solidarity that might exist more naturally between indigenous communities here in australia and indigenous or or otherwise communities throughout the pacific i think there's a really natural synergy there and i think it's something we can be very proud of in our approach to diplomacy and foreign policy. Like I think it actually is a huge advantage of Australia if that's something that we can celebrate and take a lot of pride in, if we can do it in the right ways. Yeah. It's hard, right? Like this feels like difficult territory to navigate. It is difficult and, uh, you know, acknowledging also that the Pacific was colonised by the same people that colonised here. So there's shared experiences. And certainly from my work with uh, First Nations in, in British Columbia as well, and uh, in Northern Canada, the people uh, understood uh, how that occurred. Um, and there is some level of solidarity with what's happened here in the Southern Hemisphere by the same, by the same people effectively and the same monarch under the same doctrine of discovery. So, um, you know, there's, there's lots of lessons. And now I guess this is where having a, having a open, transparent and honest conversation about the nation's past so we can inform our future is, is, uh, you know, coming at us now because I feel uh, as an Indigenous person living in Australia um, that the nation is coming out of its colonial roots and it's starting to feel like the nation that I'd hoped it felt like uh, or would feel like, you know, 20-odd years ago and I feel like we're starting to get there now. It's it's so encouraging to hear you say that. Like that 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 makes me feel really optimistic when we hear you say that. And and I suppose I'm interested in understanding what you think would characterise or already does characterise Indigenous approaches to diplomacy and foreign policy. Like you've talked about openness, transparency, truth-telling. What are some of the pillars of, of that approach? Yeah, I, I guess that, that timeline thing is a really important part to it that um, Indigenous timelines uh, are very different to, you know, Western concepts of, of time. And so we don't operate on political cycles. Uh, we operate on other cycles. And, uh, for example, when we're doing work in Northern Australia, it was, it was uh, we're working on the seasons rather than the calendar year or the financial year. Uh, and so Indigenous people, if I use the example in the Pacific, they'd, I, I would assume they'd want to work with Indigenous Australians on a timeline that's agreed, but it's also based on seasons, it's based on custom and, uh, you know, a thing that the Pacific Islands taught me, which was uh, when you needed to talk uh, business and serious business, you, you needed to sit down and have a talanoa, that is to sit down uh, in a circle with others, 
have have some carver uh, and talk through uh, some of those strategies and and come up with uh, ways and means of of doing and getting things done. Joe, it was nice to hear you say that you're starting to feel positive about this is what you'd hope to see 20 years ago. I'm sorry it took 20 years, first of all, and that's great that we're getting there. Where do you hope to see us five or 10 years into the future? What does this look like? I think where where we're heading, and uh, if I use the example of um, what's going on at a political level in places like Victoria, for example, where uh, we have a uh, a state government there that's very mature in its pro- in its approach to dealing with indigenous issues around uh, treaty making uh, around truth telling i mean that's that's pretty amazing to get to the point where where you're seeing that occur and there's significant levels of support and resources in the electorate for that um coming from the northern territory i don't quite think the northern territories uh, at that at that at that spot yet and that might sound surprising but i think in parts of the country um, that are still grappling with uh, Indigenous histories, uh, the Northern Territory is one of them, even though the Northern Territory is half owned by Indigenous people, it hasn't really grabbed hold of the reality that they've got to be fundamentally part of the future prosperity and decision-making. So uh, I think um, using the Victorian, and we're also seeing that now start in, uh, in South Australia and Queensland, and we've got a we've got a federal government now that's having conversations around that through the voice, but also other mechanisms. That gives me hope because um, we have come a long way. And uh, what I would think we would see in the next ten to twenty years uh, would be a lot more entrepreneurial relations going on, but also strong customs. We've seen a lot of land return to Indigenous people. It's yeah, it's, it's uh, quite significant across the country now in terms of rights and interests. Uh, we've seen the changes in the parliament, the acknowledgements, and simple things like uh, every time the ministers and prime ministers um, give press conferences, they're speaking in front of the flag. And so those little changes, those incremental changes, whilst taking time, they do make a a, a, a dent, I think, on the national psyche. Uh, and I would expect in the next 10 to 20 years that we would see a lot more embedding of that uh, across the community, a lot more acceptance of it. Uh, and not just in pockets, uh, but across all spectrums of life, uh, across all political parties as well, even one nation. That would be nice. Uh, might be a little bit hopeful there, but, uh, you know, got to have hope. Absolutely. And, and, we, would, and we would see an enormous level of uh, Indigenous youth uh, participating in uh, the national economy as well. Uh, obviously, things like uh, recidivism um, and incarceration, that's just got to change. I mean, that's, uh, that's in my opinion, that's a stain on the nation to have so many Aboriginal people yeah. incarcerated and um, deaths in custody and those sorts of things. So I think in 10 years' time we need to really deal and have dealt with those questions of um, incarceration, deaths in custody, low levels of health, uh, life expectancy and those sorts of things have got to be um, very much um, uh, dealt with. And it's nice to hear in terms of timeline, I know that we were discussing intergenerational thinking with climate change. That's something you hear people talking about more now. So that's being normalised, which I really like. Do you think there's ever a world where the Makarate process could be extrapolated out for how we interact globally? Is that too much to ask? Well, I mean, that's that's exactly what's been going on in South Africa. So it's a, it's a long journey. Um, and we've seen that playing out in other parts of, of the world as well, in Canada and 
um, even in, in parts of North America um, where there's been uh, historical treaties put in place and there's still that process going on. So, uh, you know, there's a long way to go. I think Australia is uh, doing reasonably well, even though um, if you catch me on a bad day, I probably wouldn't say that. But uh, I think overall Australia is doing quite well in terms of our change uh, and we've seen that, I think, amplified by the number of Indigenous people now sitting in Parliament, Federal Parliament, uh, and we're seeing more Indigenous people sitting in state parliaments around the place as well. So that's having a having an effect alongside um, Indigenous movements because I, I think at the end of the day it's Indigenous movements that make the changes and inform policy and change the nation. Mm. And one way that will hopefully be recognised soon is with the appointment of a new Indigenous ambassador. Can you tell us a bit about your take on that role and your hopes for the role, Joe? Well, I think one of the first tasks uh, for the ambassador is really to let um, important parts of the community and also important parts of government that are involved in foreign affairs uh, know that it's there and there needs to be a foreign policy for First Nations people put into practice um, so that's one thing, and it's, I think it's really important to ensure that that person and that individual has the ability to, I guess, have dialogue at a local level, but also high-level dialogue uh, at a, a diplomatic level. Um, so that's quite a set um, number of, of tasks, but it's also will take some level of skill, and, you know, I've no doubt that there are Indigenous people that can do that, do that task, but I think uh, ultimately... Um, it will make some mistakes. It's the first time that that position's even been thought of. I think it's a great thing that it's 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 being done, um, and it'll have to deal and prioritise uh, the numbers of things that it wants to it get itself involved in because ultimately there's way too much work for it to do, um, and it has to be very mindful of the fact that um, there are a lot of other other things that will require uh, indigenous local community input. And I'll just take the example for uh, you know some. Some of the some of the native species of of plants and animals that have been utilised and patented um, by others, and uh, there's been no return to indigenous people. That's something, uh, and benefit sharing of that has got to be has got to be dealt with, and that's quite a complex task to be able to ensure that these uh, foreign policies put into place that deal with some of those questions. It sure is, and trade is a critical part of foreign policy, of course. Absolutely. Is there anything that would help the ambassador do their new job? Uh, I could probably eat some kryptonite from time to time to help it. But, uh, you know, I, I really think um, ensuring that it's it's feet, uh, at, you know, whoever's in that role uh, and they're performing that role, that they just don't get caught up with the foreign uh, policy side of things, that they're actually connected and well uh, embedded in the community as well. I think that's uh, that's going to be a fundamental part to the success of it, that they're not seen to be just one of these diplomats that goes, goes off and negotiates things on behalf of things because ultimately Indigenous people need to be supplying any products into any future trade agreements or um, part of any decisions around benefit sharing questions, just for example. So there's there's got to be a lot of work done in that space. Mm. All right, final question, a quick one. We've talked a lot about what we've learnt is there anything we need to unlearn? Well, I wasn't ready for that question, I have to say. Um, unlearn. Well, I think that, um, you know, there's always this tension in my mind and my experience of uh, becoming too Western democratised in, in a lot of Indigenous settings. And by that I mean 
for example, if you take the, the native title and land rights movements, uh, it's all headed towards uh, a Western construct. That is, you need to have uh, companies put into place, you need to have these representative structures, and when you're trying to put a communal decision-making and, and a communally owned property right into a system that's born out of individual property rights, that's going to be very challenging. And I think Indigenous people need to uh, not unlearn, but they need to be cognizant that there are two competing realities here. One is a Western construct, and then there's their own, which is what their old people uh, lived on here and, and based their decision-making and their ownership of property for the last 60-odd thousand years. So um, probably not so much an unlearning, but a, a, a realisation that there needs to be attention paid to that and you just don't go down the route of the Western construct that you need to be very mindful of your heritage and your customary practice. Mm. I really thank you for your optimism today, Joe. I'm leaving this interview feeling really hopeful and optimistic, but still very mindful of the work that lies ahead. So uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Joe. Thank you very much. And uh, it was a pleasure to be on the podcast. We've been Rachel Mason-Nunn and Jessica McKenzie on the Reimagining Development Policy podcast. Please tune in again for more hearty conversations about how we can rework and rewire international development to meet our future needs. Thanks again and bye for now.